listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. It's just me today, and I feel like I need to start out by apologizing, or at least trying to explain why I've been missing in action for so long at precisely the moment when the world, and in particular this country, is burning, or transforming, or in crisis, or whatever you want to call what's going on out there, but we all know what's going on out there. Between COVID and George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and President Trump and all the stuff. And in the midst of that, you would think that a person like me would have something to say, something to add to the conversation. Um, and instead, I've been noticeably silent. I mean, all of a sudden, everybody seems to care about black lives. People that never cared about black lives care about black lives right now. And, and there's something good about that. But, but at the moment when everybody seems to care about black lives, uh, it seems like everybody except me, who's not saying very much right now, uh, at least publicly. And, that, and honestly, the fact that everybody else is talking is part of the reason why I haven't been. Um, because particularly at a moment like this, I don't want to just virtue signal. I don't want to just throw on a t-shirt or put out a meme or say something. And like, don't get me wrong. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not completely trashing virtue signaling. There is something really important about stepping up and saying where you stand. I mean, part, I, 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 in some ways, I haven't felt a lot of pressure to stand up and say where I stand because everybody knows where I stand. Because you, you could predict it. There's not a lot of news here. But I think most, most of, just like most of your friends would know where you are, most of my friends know where I am. And, and I've been public enough that most people that even aren't my friends know where I am on this stuff. I mean, I spent my whole life living in communities like the one in which George Floyd died. I mean, Marty and I met and got married about four blocks from where George Floyd died in South Minneapolis. That, that's our old neighborhood. Yeah, I think people know that I'm down with the movement. But I, I don't know if, I'm, if I've been down in the right way. And precisely because this moment feels like it could be different, like this feels like a moment of genuine possibility in a way that Michael Brown and Ferguson honestly didn't, in the way that Philando Castile and like any number of other names, you know, Trayvon Martin, like none of those moments felt like this could be the tipping point. This could be the watershed. This one actually does. And so precisely because of that, I really want to get it right. I really, I really have been spending the last two weeks in 
deep and furious conversations with, with trusted people in my life, reading, thinking, trying to figure out what does it mean to be a good neighbor to black people in this moment? What does it mean to be a good white man in this moment? What does it mean to be me in this moment in the way, to be the best me I can be in this moment? And I, I really feel like it, 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 require, it's, it requires me to think more deeply or it's required me to think more deeply. The other thing is, I mean, to be honest, one of the reasons I haven't been anxious to like step up and speak my piece is that I'm ashamed of myself. I mean, I feel like for a lot of people, this is awaken, an awakening. They're going like, wow, I, I had no idea. Like there was something about this George Floyd video that brought it home. Like, oh my gosh, this stuff really happens. But I mean, I spent most of my life living in neighborhoods where this stuff happens. I've had lots of friends who this stuff has happened to. Like I've known about this stuff. And I didn't do very much about it. I mean, I thought that what I was doing, like I was trying to be that other kind of white guy. I was trying to be like, oh, you know, you see, it's it, this guy's different. The, the, the way these, the way he and his family relate to black people in the community is different. But the truth of the matter is, is that even before those videos started popping up to back up the stories, I'd heard those stories for years and I didn't do a damn thing about it. It didn't threaten me or my family. And so I didn't try to change the rules of local policing. I knew they were bad. I knew the way local police went on. I just paid my taxes, minded my own business and kept on wishing for a better world. Like I live in Cincinnati. And I lived here for nine years before that. And Cincinnati police force has a lot of, has had a lot of problems with the community. I mean, it's much better now after the riots here, right before I moved here, that were, that were occasioned by like 14 black people being shot by police in one year. Most of them unarmed. Maybe they were all unarmed. Now that I think about it, there were other people that were armed that got shot. You know, but like, I, I knew that we were sending armed police officers to deal with mental health situations that could escalate easily and it would be better to send other people. Like I knew a lot of this stuff that people are talking about right now. And if I had done, if people like me had done our civic duty, you know, a cop like the one who killed George Floyd would have been fired before it happened. I mean, there are rules to protect those cops. There are unions to protect those cops. There are procedures and things like that to protect those cops so that even when a cop shows himself out to be a dangerous person, to, to not, be, not, not be a real public safety officer, it's hard to get rid of them. But like those rules, I, I knew those rules needed to change and I did nothing. So, you know, like I'm horrified by the police officer but it was my responsibility to get guys like that off the street. And so on some level, when I see what's going on out there, I go like, you know whose fault it is? It's my fault. I, I'm a taxpayer. Like I funded that stuff knowingly. Knowingly funded it. Because it was easier to do that 
than to do something else. And so like, yeah, so I got, I don't feel like I can come out here and be like, well, let me tell you, you know, as, 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 a, as an ally, you know, here are the books you should be reading and here's the stuff you should be doing. Because like I read all those books, I've done a lot of that stuff and I still really sat on my hands. But there's more to it than that. I mean, the more I think about this, the more I think that the, the, the relationship between black people and police officers in this country is, yeah, it's a problem in and of itself. And we need to deal with it immediately and, and decisively. But it's also the linchpin of a much larger and more complicated problem that we have not really dug into. And maybe, maybe it's because I'm starting to be a therapist now and I'm really doing a lot of thinking about why when people act out, why when people do stuff, like I'm learning to stop asking like, what's wrong with you? And to start asking like, what happened? Like what sets you up to act this way? And boy, when I think about black people in America and what a, what a struggle it's been and what a problem they are in certain communities, like where you go like, hey, I don't know, we don't know how to educate these people. We don't know how to police these people. We don't know how to get these people back to work. Like these people have worse health outcomes. We don't know how to keep these people from getting COVID. Like these people are really, they are at the bottom of every measure of American society. I don't think most of us are willing to look back and go like, yeah, chattel slavery was not abolished in this country until 1865. And the Civil Rights Act wasn't passed until 1964. So just given those two facts, it's hard to argue that this country's social, political, and economic hierarchies and the legal and educational systems that preserve and reinforce them were literally designed to oppress and exploit black people. I mean, that isn't all they were designed to do, but that was part of the operating system. They, that was designed and it was baked in. Like, yeah, the way we're going to set up this country, like the way we're going to set up the hierarchies, the, the economics, the way we're going to educate people, who we're going to educate, who we're not going to educate, it's all set up. It was all set up to oppress and exploit black people. Certainly it's not, I, I wouldn't, you know, a friend of mine said, are you saying that, you know, that, that the, our present system is drenched in white supremacy? And I'm going, no, 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 I'm not saying that. I don't think it's, I don't think it, it is, it is still intentionally designed to oppress and exploit black people, but there's no question that it was. And more recently, I mean, like even after the civil rights act passed in 64, ever since president Nixon appointed Warren Burger to the Supreme court and the Supreme court got a, got a, got a conservative majority in 1969, which it has not relented on. The Supreme Court has sided with the rich and powerful against the poor and the weak, including most black Americans in virtually every area of the law. Like when you talk about like a legal system, like the cops enforce the law, but the laws they enforce are like the tax laws they enforce, the economic laws, the, 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 the who can sue who laws, the who gets to vote law, the, all those laws have been been relentlessly since 1969 relentlessly sided against the poor sided against the weak sided against black americans 
and throughout all of this mistreatment and injustice, legal mistreatment and legal injustice, uniformed police officers have been the most visible and frightening symbols of white America's ability to physically dominate black Americans. And so like when people say to me like, hey, you know, why are people talking about, you know, abolishing the police? Why are people acting like the most policemen are really good? I'm just saying like the, the institution of uniformed police officers, like if you are black in this country, you can open your history book and see uniformed police officers spraying with a fire hose, peaceful protesters in Selma. Uniformed police officers have, have been the most visible symbol of economic and social and political hierarchies that oppress and exploit black people. And that's why much of black America profoundly distrusts those hierarchies and profoundly distrusts the legal and educational systems that preserve them. And most especially profoundly distrust police officers because after centuries of all this stuff, black America has been culturally traumatized. Black America has been culturally traumatized. And I use that word traumatized on purpose. Like I said, I've been studying a lot of, a lot of trauma stuff in, in, in psychology, individual trauma. And one of the things that they teach you is, is that you see a person acting in these ridiculous, difficult, self-destructive ways. And most often the question you should be asking is not like, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing that? Like, that's not logical. That's, that doesn't make sense. You're, you should go like, what happened to you? What decisions did you have to make in order to survive what happened to you? Because that's the way trauma works. Tra trauma, like, like what happens is, is people respond normally in trauma to abnormal circumstances. They do what anyone would do if they were getting beaten up as a child by a grown-up or getting sexually assaulted as a child by a grown-up or watching their parents be beaten in front of them by a uniformed police officer. Like, like people, you go like, well, people come up with attitudes. People come up with behaviors. People start to use drugs. People develop high degrees of hypertension. And those are normal responses to those things. It's just that those things aren't normal. Most people don't experience a whole lot of them. I know black men in America commit more violent crimes per capita than any other demographic. And I know that they're more likely to be incarcerated and involved in high stakes encounters with police officers. I know police officers and, and other members of the criminal justice system face significantly greater amounts of contempt, hostility, violence from black Americans than from any other demographic. I know that black Americans fare worse than everyone else in this country on practically every measure of health and well-being. And I know that black Americans often act in ways that cause other people to wonder like, what's wrong with them? I lived in those neighborhoods most of my life. I'm living in one now. I see a lot of crazy stuff. And I know it is easy to, to look at black Americans and go like, wow, especially poor black Americans go like, wow, those people scare me. Those people confuse me. I don't know what to do with those people. But if we were more trauma informed as a society, we would stop asking like, what's wrong with you? And we would start asking like, what happened? Because the truth of the matter is, is a lot happened. And, and a lot of decisions had to be made by 
by people and by their ancestors just to survive what happened. And a lot of the ways that people come up with to survive trauma don't work very well when the trauma goes away. Don't work very well in open society. Don't work very well in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a normal circumstance. I was like, look, you know, I know that, I know that black conservatives like Len Lowry and John McWhorter and like people I read and respect and think have really, have really good points to make about the danger of excusing all misbehavior and the danger of saddling people with low expectations. But having said that, with all due respect, I still believe the most difficult realities of black Americans are long-term consequences of massive multi-generational cultural trauma. I mean, we're talking about a community in which every family tree begins with multiple generations of the kind of severe child, early childhood trauma that, that researchers today know devastate a person's long-term health and well-being and diminish the prospects of their children for having a good life too. I mean, a community in which every family tree begins with lots of rape, lots of physical violence, lots of economic hardship, you know, humiliate, multiple humiliations, I mean, slavery. And then Jim Crow and like, there's a water fountain. You can't drink from this one. There, there, there's a lousy school. We'll have a good school over here. Like systemic, systematic discrimination, systematic dehumanization, systematic misrepresentation in the popular media. Hundreds of years of this. And any, any researcher today, you know, look at the ACES study. Um, I, I listened to this wonderful TED talk by a woman sort of explaining, a, a researcher talking about that, that the uh, ACES, ACES uh, study is done by the CDC and Kaiser Permanente. And what they basically studied was like, what are the, what are the consequences of adverse childhood experiences? You know, things like seeing violence, um, um, being neglected in certain ways. And what they found was, is that, you know, if you had exposure to multiple ones of these, you know, your life expectancy could drop by 30 years. You would be more susceptible by significant amounts to all the things that most likely kill people, heart disease and hypertension and all these things, all the things that you're seeing in the black community that are, that are causing um, them to be more susceptible to COVID. These are, all the, these are all the results of, of childhood trauma. And you go like, what am I trying to say? And what I'm trying to say is, is, is if you have a culture that is forged in trauma, people are like, it doesn't just stop with the one person who got traumatized. It's the person who watched it. And it's the DNA that gets changed. And it's the way in which a family learns to survive under that kind of pressure that when that pressure is removed, family keeps trying to survive in that old way. And it's, it's maladaptive once the trauma is, once the danger is gone. I'm not, I'm not doing a very good job of explaining it. I'll, I'll put a link to this TED talk there. But one of the images I remember her saying is she said, look, if a bear comes into your, into your 
your case. Your, your, your adrenaline will run, fight or flight will come on. Like, all, you, you know, you'll release all sorts of, of chemicals into your bloodstream and it'll jack you up. And she's like, that is the appropriate and healthy thing to do, to have all those chemicals go in your system to get you out of the, out of the way. But she said, if that, it, like, what is not normal and what is not healthy is to have those chemicals released on a daily basis. And that's what happens when people are traumatized, when they're in situations of long-term trauma is, is that they keep reacting, they keep releasing that stuff. And, and long-term, it wreaks havoc on their mental and physical health. And you don't need to watch 12 Years a Slave or any of these movies very, you don't need to watch too many of them to realize that in a situation in which you were constantly at risk of physical danger or living in a neighborhood in which was being patrolled by armed people who could do whatever they want to you without accountability, that you might, you might be releasing those same chemicals and it might mess you up. You know, I, I think the black community's visceral response to the murder of George Floyd which, you know, perfectly symbolizes its history of relentless mistreatment and systemic injustice. I mean, a knee on the neck. But I think the way, the way that we've seen black people respond to it is a clear indication that we got to traumatize people and that every time one of these things happens, it re-traumatizes people. And we're not going to go very much farther until we face up to that trauma and we start dealing with that community as people that need to that, that, that need to be addressed as trauma survivors. Instead of just going like, look, it's an equal playing field now. I know it was bad then, but it's different now. You can go anywhere you want. Do anything you want. It's just unrealistic. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of thinking. And what I realized is, is that for all those years I lived in black neighborhoods and helped people and tried to get people better educations and, and better housing and all of that stuff, I almost never acknowledged the depth of the difference between how they got here and how I got here. I seldom, I seldom acknowledged the difference between what a police officer means to them and what a police officer means to me. I literally knew better. I, I, I don't think I knew about, I, I knew better about the realities, but I think that like I didn't know what to do with it. And, and maybe it's this trauma-informed stuff that's, that I'm learning and that's coming up that's sort of going like, oh yeah, like, like the beginning of it is, is you, you recognize that trauma has consequences, not just on that person, but on the people around them and on their children. And, and that traumatized people tend to traumatize other people. But you take some responsibility instead of just feeling morally superior. I'm going to look at my family and I go like, yeah, what trauma? You know, like we have little personal traumas in our family, but like in terms of our are welcome to America and like the long-term story, like this country was good to us, has been good to us. And in many ways, 
that goodness was financed by economies that made their money exploiting other people. And I, you know, and, and if you think that like I'm all about like trying to figure out how to unravel all this stuff and work on reparations and figure out how to like make everything fair and how to compensate, there is no compensating. When you traumatize, when, when somebody is traumatized, you can't compensate them. You can't equalize things, but you like trauma-informed care isn't about like removing the trauma or eliminating the disparity. It's about acknowledging it and sort of going like, okay, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? How do how, how do we by acknowledging and by speaking to and by 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 trying to trying to take seriously what happened to you? How do we help you develop a set of responses and a set of emotions? that are appropriate to your present circumstances rather than our, our echoes of, of your past circumstances. And by the way, how do we secure, how do we make sure that your present circumstances are secure enough that you have no reason to continue to protect yourself that way, to continue to, to, to kind of compensate in the ways that you've compensated for your lack of security? So yeah, yeah, I, I, I do. I think we start we start with this criminal justice stuff and we start by, you know, I mean, basically I, I want, I think we start by, by radically rethinking how we fund the, the kind of the two biggest reinforcers of the system as it is. And that is, you know, on the one hand, our legal system, the laws, the tax, you know, the way, and, and, the, and on the other hand, our education system which is how we sort of perpetuate ideas and perpetuate um, narratives. And so like, I wanna talk about like, you know, the Supreme Court, for instance, number, number of years ago, right after that Nixon appointment, the Supreme Court voted that it was okay that we fund education based on property taxes locally. So that if you live in a rich neighborhood, you get more money spent on your education than if you live in a poor neighborhood. There was actually a poor family sued and said, hey, I, I, thought, I thought the Constitution guaranteed like equal rights and, and I thought we were guaranteed like, you know, sort of equal education. So shouldn't educational funding be, you know, at least on a statewide level, shouldn't it be equalized across the state? And it went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court voted it down. This is, this is a way of legally keeping people where they're at. And so, yeah, we got to rethink the way we fund education, the laws that we use, the way we enforce those laws. Those are the two things I think we need to start with. I, like, I think that's clear, but like, I, I don't, I didn't want to just come out and say like, yeah, you know, Black Lives Matter and, you know, defund the police and, and this, like, it's, it's more nuanced, it's more complicated than that. Like, I, like we, what we need to figure out is how do we deliver public safety in a different format? And you go like, well, why can't we just reform the format that we have and make, and I go like, because again, like when you're talking about trauma, one of the things is you go like, look, if you're traumatized by somebody wearing a purple t-shirt, you might have a problem with purple t-shirts. And if somebody was really loving to you, they wouldn't go like, listen, you need to get over it. Like, like this, I'm wearing a purple t-shirt and I'm a nice person. You just, somebody's just like, you know what? All right, I'm going to get rid of the purple t-shirts. All right, we're going to call public safety something else. Because that old name and those old uniforms, man, they got a lot of bad mojo attached to them. 
and, and, and my, my neighbors are traumatized by that stuff. Like I said, like, I don't feel very self-confident. I don't feel, I don't feel very righteous right now. I'm tempted. I, I was listening to uh, Killer Mike. Killer Mike gave a wonderful speech when the rioting started in Atlanta as part of the protests. Um, and he argued for why, of all places, Atlanta's a place of hope for black people in America and, and, and we shouldn't burn it down, is what he said. And um, I, I often think he has wonderful things to say. I've listened to him. I even listened to him being interviewed by Joe Rogan, which was a bizarre combination. And I, I just think Killer Mike, he's a, he's a rapper, he's an activist. But, but one of the things that he said that, that, that I worried about for myself was he said, he, 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 I worried about my response to it because what he said was, he said, look, I'm not an organizer. I'm a mobilizer. He said, I speak out in ways, I rap in ways that get other people to join organizations, to do things. Like, like I'm not the organizer. There are people more qualified than me who are on the ground doing that stuff. And I, I had a tendency to go, yeah, that's me. I'll be, I'll be a mobilizer. I'm good at talking. And I thought, gosh, in a country where everybody has a Facebook page and everybody has a Twitter account, the, 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 my fear is, is that everybody will be like, yeah, mobilizer, there's the role I want. I want to talk about this stuff. And I realized that like, at least here in Cincinnati, I need to be more of an organizer too. Like I need to, I need to actually deal with my city council and I need to show up at some meetings and I need to try to figure out how to, how to, I need to figure out which candidates are going to do the things that need are, are going to are going to push the stuff that needs to be pushed in, in in terms of criminal justice reform and in terms of educational reform in our city, and and, and I need to to, to mobile, I need to vote, and I need to give money to those campaigns like local like maybe I'm a mobilizer in the world I don't know because I got a voice because I got a microphone but like in in in, in this in, in my neighborhood I got to be a good citizen I got to be an organizer I got to be on the ground, and I don't know what that's going to mean exactly yet. That's what I'm trying to figure out. And, and in some ways, this is what I'm trying to figure out. I, I, I like, you're going like, you don't talk about this stuff very well, Bart. And I go like, I know. I know. I felt like I needed to say something. I know. I know I didn't say it very well. I'm going to get better at it. I got be when I When I left the faith and became a humanist, it took me a long time to get good at talking about pursuing loving kindness and goodness in a secular way, to talk about it in a way that so made it sound like, interesting and exciting and simple and easy to understand. Like that takes a while to get your, get your language down. I, I'm going to get this down. But for now, I just wanted to at least let you know that I'm sorry. It took me so long to figure out not what I was feeling, but what I was thinking and what I should do. You know, I, I don't know if this is helpful to anybody, except in as much as you see a real person who you know, and you, and you see me struggling. And you see me trying to work it through. So yeah, do I think this stuff is is all about being a good a good humanist? I do. And am I grateful to be in that process with y'all? I am. So thank you, and we'll see you next time on Humanize Me. For more on Bart, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. 
Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. Hey, you could be larger than life.